Welcome again, everyone, to the Trauma Podcast. This is Joe DeBose, and today again, I am joined by the star of our show on many an occasion, Dr. David Feliciano, the editor of Journal Trauma, Powerboat Racing Champion, Lake Michigan, 1995. Uh, the last part is not actually true, uh, but uh, we're always thankful for him to join us because he truly does have a wealth of uh, expertise. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Feliciano. You're welcome, Joe, but I'm not the editor of the Journal of Trauma. That's Dr. Moore. Yeah, the, uh, the editor of the trauma textbook. Thank you very much for correcting me. I, I seem to uh, leave myself open for correction on many occasions with you, but that's okay. Thanks for catching me again. Um, today, we, we kind of decided to talk a little bit about fasciotomies, which is a procedure that we utilize a lot in trauma, particularly vascular trauma, but there's a lot of misconceptions. There's a lot of dogma, a lot of things I don't personally have my head around in terms of the, the minutiae. So if we start kind of at the beginning, um, what is the rationale for doing a fasciotomy in the setting of trauma? If you have ischemia to an extremity, like with an arterial injury, you get ischemic edema in the cells below that because the pump in the cell membrane just doesn't work well. And the cells increase in volume about 6 to 10%. If you increase the volume of cells and tissues, it increases the pressure in a contained space, i.e. a musculofascial space, and this pressure may actually exceed capillary arterial pressure, which will obviously compromise uh, structures that are highly sensitive to oxygen flow, i.e. nerves and muscle. So it's avoiding the, the, the compartment syndrome and all the sequelae that come with it. So it strikes me, if you're going to relieve a compartment syndrome, you need to figure out how to make that diagnosis. So how do I assess for that? Who should I suspect should have it in the trauma setting? And what do I do to go about making that diagnosis? Uh, you've asked quite a few questions there. I think the bottom line is you cannot tell on a physical exam in an unconscious patient whether or not you have a compartment syndrome or not. For example, you can't clearly palpate the anterior compartment between the knee and the ankle. It's a small, tight compartment to begin with, and you can't put your finger on it and say, oh yeah, it's really swollen. There, there are four high-risk groups, and we don't really have time, but I'll give you the, the overall categories. There are people who, by history, are at high risk for compartment syndrome. One example would be somebody who's had a delay in treatment after losing arterial flow from a gunshot wound or fracture. Second group are those in whom you can do an exam, and they have the physical exam findings of a compartment syndrome. Third group are those in whom certain things happen in the operating room, either a combined arterial and venous injury or an arterial or venous ligation. Those are high-risk patients. And finally, any patient whose compartment pressure is exceedingly high, even with individual tolerance, you can suspect they're probably going to develop a compartment syndrome. Basically, you, you go through this, and people um, in whom you can't examine at least depend on history and what you find in the OR and measure compartment pressure. And patients who are awake and alert pre-op go through all four, history, physical, 
what you do in the OR and compartment pressure. Compartment pressures are easily measured uh, just with a standard hemodynamic tubing up to a monitor in the operating room using an 18-gauge needle. You can buy commercial wick catheters or slit catheters, which most of us in general surgery don't use. And then many of us have used the striker intercompartmental pressure monitor for probably 20 or 25 years. So be suspicious in certain high-risk groups. And my advice to everybody is if you're unsure, measure the compartment pressure. Okay, you know, there's this discussion, and you know, you and I have had some great conversations about this because the background of it is kind of interesting and why we do it in different settings. The military austere setting is very different than the level one trauma center in the States. But there's this concept of prophylactic fasciotomy versus a therapeutic where you have a confirmed compartment syndrome or compartment elevated compartment pressure, and you are performing a therapy to relieve that. What is prophylactic fasciotomy, and does it have a role, and in what settings in your mind? Everybody would have their own definition, but I think a reasonable definition is you have a high-risk patient. You have a presumption that a compartment syndrome is occurring or will occur soon, and you have not taken the time to measure compartment pressure. In contrast to a therapeutic fasciotomy where you have symptoms and or signs of a classic compartment syndrome in the presence of an elevated pressure. There's very little to distinguish between them. The problem is that many patients, military or civilian, who get fasciotomies with a prophylactic label, we're not totally sure they have them. If you've been unable to examine them or talk to them, and if you haven't measured a compartment pressure. So I've never been a fan of prophylactic. I always measure because I think it's educational for the team and me. Well, what do you think about, you know, one of the rationales in the military environment is, A, a lot of our patient, most severely injured patients come intubated, you can't examine them, and then I'm going to operate and maybe do a vascular repair and then put them on a plane where they're really not going to have great monitoring for 16 to 18 hours. What if you're at a level one trauma center, it's a busy trauma night, or you need to transport the patient from a level two to a level one, and you're worried about that gap in time uh, where they may go without detection. Do you think there's any role in those settings for the prophylactic, quote unquote, fasciotomy? It certainly makes sense in in selected settings. You have to counter that just a little bit with about 15 to 20% incidence of long-term sequelae in the British studies and people who have had below knee fasciotomies. So again, um, with a long transport time and a high-risk patient, sure. But I would recommend that if you're in a civilian level one trauma center and you have a high-risk patient, but your compartment pressure is 10, you know, I certainly would not do a fasciotomy at that time, but I would do sequential compartment pressure measurements. Okay. Uh, so when I, let's say we do have a patient who has an elevated pressure, it's confirmed by measurement, uh, and we open up the compartment, uh, anterior, posterior, uh, any of the compartments. How do I assess the muscle viability after opening the fascia? It's really a strange phenomenon, but muscle that's going to die eventually often bleeds very, very vigorously when you cut into it, even though it looks a little pale and funny. I particularly found that out on the soft tissue service at uh, the Shock Trauma Center. My my, uh, way of determining is if muscle does not react to the electrocautery, 
particularly at a reoperation, I can tell you it's not going to get any better. I've had any number of patients after vascular repairs in the lower extremity where things didn't look right, but it bled great. But if they don't react the first day and they don't react the second day, I find it unlikely. I have found it unlikely that that muscle is going to recover in a meaningful fashion. So, if the muscle's not viable in one of the compartments, what do we do? And what do we do in that situation? Does the compartment that it, the muscle's dead in matter? How do you manage that? Well, there's an interesting controversy around the world for for these acute situations that you're talking about, like acute arterial trauma, and you've opened the compartment with a fasciotomy, and the muscle looks bad. Certainly, it's okay to wait till the next day and see again if it's got any reactivity back. If it does not, you're already open. Standard of care in this country is to go ahead and do a debridement, try and avoid cutting into major nerves just in case they're still going to function. The contrast is if you go to places where there have been major disasters like the big earthquakes in China and all, and people have been trapped under buildings for days, in the Chinese uh, literature, which has been sent over here, a lot of those patients are left just to have muscle die and fibrose, but since nobody's ever done a fasciotomy, the risk of infection is much less. So there are different schools of thought, but if you open it, it looks bad the next day to breed. Okay. Um, would you, if let's say two of the three compartments or specific compartments are dead that, you know, I, I always think of the, in the posterior and the deep posterior, if you don't have anything to rotate up over a p- potential amputation, does that influence kind of some of the factors that you... Yeah, it's a hard call. I, I mean, the compartment that goes out most commonly below the knee is obviously the anterior compartment. And if you lose your anterior compartment, you can actually be an athlete because you can wear a right angle brace on your ankle. So that one compartment you should never use as an indication for amputation. If you lose three compartments in the presence of, let's say, a bad fracture or bad soft tissue injury, that's a different story. I will say I've had patients come back a year or two later where we've lost a lot of muscle tissue in both anterior and posterior compartments and their leg, either the muscle that's remaining is hypertrophied, I don't think it rejuvenates, but I've had patients come back with a much more normal appearing leg. So even though we have great lower extremity prostheses in this country, in the absence of infection, if I've got a couple of compartments that function, I may wait and see how the patient does with ambulation before I commit them to, ambu- uh, to an amputation. What are your expert tips for fasciotomy and what do you see as the most common mistake that's made by people who are not experts? Uh, they haven't read the book or looked in the pictures. I mean, it's, there's a right and a wrong way to do the, you know, the anteromedial, um, excuse me, the anterolateral release of the anterior and perineal compartments one skin incision, two separate fascial incisions about four to five centimeters apart. And then, of course, I probably missed the deep posterior compartment many times in my first 10 years as an attending till I learned to detach the soleus off the backside of the tibia. 
you need to see the muscle group right under the tibia and then you know you have released the deep posterior compartment so I'd say people don't know the anatomy well they haven't read the book properly on how to do it and they miss areas of the compartment that are still not decompressed or again they miss an entire compartment usually deep posterior you know, and I, uh, having done a vascular surgery fellowship, I think I, what I often tell people now that I didn't say before when I'd done a bunch of military surgeons, it, really that posterior section, you got to see that neurovascular bundle to know that you're definitively in that right compartment. Um, if you're not comfortable with identifying you've taken down that, all that soleus or not. And the other thing I see a lot, and I don't know if you see this much, is people make these small little skin incisions, and then the swelling occurs, and the skin ends up being a restricted band. Yeah, that's been studied way back. Uh, the skin will exert about 5 to 10 millimeters more of pressure if you don't release it. And I watched where I trained the surgeons uh, using these small skin incisions back in the previous millennium. Let me just say to the young surgeons that are listening, don't do that. This is, you're trying to save an extremity. You can close many of these skin incisions later. So I tell people, and we've written about this, to make somewhere between a 25 and 35 centimeter skin incision so you can see the whole compartment. What about uh, dressing and wound care to use the fasciotomy? Some people do the, you know, kind of the crisscross rubber bands at the skin edges using a stapler. The people use vacuum-assisted. Uh, what, what, some people do what, just what simple wet to dries. What's your thought process on all those different approaches? Yeah, it's very personal. Um, my own philosophy has always been if I have a hemodynamically stable patient that I've done a vascular repair and a fasciotomy on the first night, I just put in vertical mattress skin sutures the very first night, tie them as a bundle, and then when I bring the patient back after a couple days of elevation, all I need to do is tie them. Some people find it an annoyance, but it makes it very easy for the re-op. Other people love the vac. I, I have seen modest data that you know the vac will improve your skin closure rate. Other people use the silesic vessel loops around staples. Uh, again, we've written about this, and anything that works is fine. The key is elevate the patient. When no one's looking, give them some Lasix to diurese the snot out of them. And four or five days later, 60 to 80% of these can be closed. There is an occasional patient with massive edema, and those patients will have to be skin grafted. Rule of the road in young men who are clumsy is skin graft them medially, close the lateral incision primarily. Okay. What about, yeah, I've heard this, that Lasix trick used a few times. Uh, in my prior training, people have advocated for mannitol if the patient is appropriate for that. Sometimes even to avoid in that patient who's kind of marginal developing compartment syndrome uh, to use mannitol or Lasix. Have you ever used mannitol or Lasix in that setting in someone who has a marginal pressure? I have, and it's certainly written in a lot of the books. I'm honestly not aware of the data. The one thing I'll say about Lasix is, based on all of our experiences in cardiac surgery, when you give 20 or 40 milligrams IV, you get this huge diuresis over the next hour or two, and then you dehydrate the patient after giving fluid. And I learned a long time ago, if you give 20 milligrams of Lasix IM, three times a day you get sort of this continual flow of urine which drives the patient out over a day or two without all the need to re-establish uh, a lot of IV fluids. 
How do you make the decision when it's appropriate to close? You talked a little bit about your decision making in the clumsy young man. You said that you prefer to close the the well, lateral. Yeah. Um, yeah. Any situate? Do you always prefer to close the? Uh, uh, close the lateral first, or yeah, because uh, frankly, men bump into things, and it's just hard on a skin graft to continually be traumatized. So I, I always first close them laterally, and then just see if I can get them closed medially. Um, pre-op, I just look at the patient, maybe tug on the skin in the uh, in the ward, and see if their leg just physically looks smaller. A lot of times, if you close one side, the other side is tight, but if you simply use your electrocautery and go between the subcutaneous tissue and the fascia and undermine, you know, up toward the tibia and back to the posterior aspect of the leg, you often gain a lot. I've never had to take down a fasciotomy closure, though some of them, when you do both sides, can be very tight. But to me, the elevation and the undermining at surgery get most of them, many of them closed, not all. What other things about fasciotomy have we not talked about that you wish most folks knew? Well, there are a lot of commercial devices, you know, to help close open wounds. Um, I know in our monograph we listed four separate wound closure devices that can be used rather than sutures, and they all sort of are based on the principle that when you close something under tension in the human body, particularly the skin, the collagen fibrils stretch and separate over the first 45 minutes to an hour. So things that are very tight in the OR will often ease up over time. I think the the biggest mistake is one of the earliest papers I wrote on fasciotomy, 20% of the patients at the county hospital in Houston got their fasciotomy at a reoperation and surely a bunch of those patients probably needed it at the first operation. And that was an impetus for me to start measuring compartment pressures and also recognizing who the high-risk groups are. I just, I don't do this willy-nilly because again, some people suffer with nerve damage and skin problems the rest of their life from a fasciotomy. But I also don't bury my head in the sand that if I've got a funny situation with a long period of ischemia, a big swollen leg, I ligated a couple veins, I just take the time and if their compartment pressure is in the really around 30 millimeters of mercury, which is you know, five to seven times normal. I'm assuming they're gonna get worse over the next couple hours and I'll do the fasciotomy the first night unless I have just a terrible damage control situation. Without prolonging this too much, when I ligate a vena cava, which is rare obviously, Mm then I always measure the compartment pressures before I leave the room. And if I think the patient will tolerate a bilateral below knee for compartment fasciotomy, I'll do it with the chief resident or the fellow in about 20 minutes, rather than rush the patient back six hours from now when their compartment pressure went from 30 to 50. So you say you do do prophylactic fasciotomies? I would measure in those patients as well. I I don't do that again until I measure, to be honest with you. It's a high-risk situation. You know, you've knocked off all venous and probably a fair fair amount of lymphatic return. And uh, I've done thigh fasciotomies for cable ligation, though Dr. Demetriotis told me they had never done a thigh fasciotomy at L.A. County. Yeah, I don't know. I'll have to ask him about that one. Uh, You know, one thing that I think people forget about, uh, and... (laughs) 
we don't have the experience you have, and you've actually looked at this question because we've talked about this before, but the long-term ramifications of a fasciotomy. We do it to save the limb, and that's, I think, people have a low threshold for doing it, perhaps too low in some instances, but um, very few people think about the long-term issues. What what kind of long-term issues these patients have? How do they look when they come back? Do they all do great? Do they all have issues? What, what is your thoughts and knowledge on that? Yeah, it's very interesting. There, there's very little in the American literature, but there are at least two British studies done in the previous decade. And, and the four things people complain about after fasciotomies are chronic pain, uh, muscle weakness, skin breakdown or uh, sensitive skin, and nerve deficits, uh, usually the one of the perineal nerves, superficial perineal below the knee where the surgeon just has gone a little deeper than they should. So there's a whole list of things that bother patients, but those four really stood out. I have never studied that in any of my patients here. I uh, have no idea, but I do believe the British studies probably are pretty accurate depiction sure well i'll tell you what this has been a great review i always enjoy these conversations with you um i i do have some random questions for you at the end and you're now a veteran of the trauma podcast so you know how this works these are designed to for us to get to know you and for you to impart some wisdom to the to the read to the listeners so if you're ready i will proceed with some random questions okay okay uh first question if you could disinvent something in other words Take something that had been invented and make it never have come across the the human thought or, and to be invented. What would it be? Reply to all on email. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. It is awful convenient on occasion, but certainly abused over and over and over again. Uh, so the reply to all button will be abolished henceforth. Um, what do you think about when you're alone these days? I would like to get back to work, <laughs> frankly. I think uh, I'm in this high-risk category because of my age, but I miss uh, you know, operating and being with the fellows and, and the faculty like yourself. Uh, I'm trying to stay busy academically, but it's been a little boring. Yeah, I know to the listeners who may be listening to this sometime in the future, this we're in the midst of the height of the COVID response here in Maryland, and Dr. Feliciano, we're keeping him in reserve in the bullpen uh, for the time being until some of that clears. Um, next question for you. What is the hardest lesson that you've had to learn professionally? When I was surgeon-in-chief at Grady, I think the, the thing I learned very quickly was that in disputes, no matter who was involved, you have to listen to both sides and not make a premature judgment. And a related uh, hard lesson was that when you're speaking to junior faculty, don't dominate the conversation. Listen, find out what their issues are. And in that first conversation, don't promise that you can fix it until you've given it some thought or talk to other people. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, finally, you certainly have published a tremendous amount. You have both in textbooks, uh, you've given a million presentations and have done conducted a lot of exceedingly high quality research. There are a lot of people out there just getting started in these endeavors from the medical student, the young resident, the young faculty member who has an interest in this area. It's certainly not for everyone, but those who are interested often have a hard time figuring out where to start and how to maintain that research volume in an era where their clinical responsibilities progressively grow through their careers. So what would be your advice on 
on how to, if you're interested and passionate about wanting to research, how to get started, how to maintain it. Uh, two things, really. If you work in a center, for example, where it's 85 to 90% blunt trauma, don't worry about studying what happens with gunshot wounds to the femoral artery or subclavian artery. You have to work with the material that you have in your center. So that would be studying patients with traumatic brain injury, blunt trauma to the chest, open fractures, and of course, critical care. You have to study what you have or you're gonna have to move somewhere if you have a passion for something else. Second thing is, I've hardly ever written about something that I didn't really have an interest in. I really tried always to study things that I had run into clinically that really perplexed me or that really interested me. And there's some backstory to my long interest in vascular trauma. But one of my senior colleagues in another city said to me early in my career, I've already written everything there is to know about vascular trauma, so don't bother with it. <laughs> and, and I must say that comment really piqued my interest, which hasn't changed for 42 years. Well, I don't know who this colleague was, but I would uh, reckon a bet that you have buried them. Uh, if you, I put their weight of what they've written against what the weight of you've written, I can tell you which end would come out winning, and it'd probably be the Feliciano pile. Oh, dear, don't say that. <laughs> Well, listen, Dr. Feliciano, we don't want to take up any more of your time. We certainly appreciate you uh, taking the time. I know you're trying to get through some of your research endeavors. We look forward to seeing you back in our clinical realm when the COVID situation clears a little bit more. And thank you so much for committing to uh, assisting us with the podcast. Thanks for having me, Joe. This has been another episode of the Trauma Podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to check out all of our content, which is available anywhere that you consume podcasts. Mm -hmm.